Welcome to Cats Cast, a bi-weekly podcast delivering interviews, arts, culture, and history from New York's Catskill Mountains. This week, segments from our Catskill Mountains Scenic Byway audio tour, including DEC Natural Resources Supervisor Bill Rudge with an overview of the Catskill Park, Diane Galusha on the Ashokan Reservoir and New York City's water supply, fly fishing the Esopus Creek with Mark Lodi, and reminiscences of John Burroughs with Bill Burns, Steve Castor, and Roland Smith. The 52-mile Catskill Mountains Scenic Byway follows New York State Route 28 through the heart of the Central Catskills. For maps, itineraries, and links to area restaurants, shops, and accommodations, visit scenickatskills.com, where you'll also find a full menu of audio driving guides. Thanks also to the Emerson Resort and Spa in Mount Tremper, New York. The Emerson Resort and Spa is a hidden treasure surrounded by the splendor of the Catskill Mountains, featuring spacious accommodations in the Contemporary Inn and Adirondack Style Lodge. Emerson guests enjoy a nature-inspired spa, dining in their signature restaurant, Woodnotes Grill, the shops at Emerson, and the world's largest kaleidoscope. Welcome to New York's Catskill Mountains and the Catskill Mountains Scenic Byway, stretching from the town of Olive to Andes, New York. I'm Kathleen McNenny. To start us off, we took a hike with Bill Rudge, a natural resources supervisor for New York State's Department of Environmental Conservation. The Catskill Park is an important part of the region he oversees. My job is to coordinate the department's natural resource programs throughout that region, and those natural resource programs include forest management, wildlife management, and fisheries management. The Catskill Forest Preserve actually is the public-owned land within the Catskills, and the Forest Preserve was created in 1885, in large part in reaction to the heavy forest cutting that was taking place throughout the state for a variety of reasons, including the Civil War, which created this tremendous demand for leather. The process to create leather involves two critical elements, and that's the hide of of wild animals and tannin, which is used to tan those hides for a variety of purposes, boots, belts, holsters, etc. So the Catskills had this tremendous resource in terms of tannin because the Catskills are heavily forested by hemlock trees. The hemlock bark is rich in tannin. A lot of hemlocks, in fact, the entire region was nearly clear-cut in the process of cutting hemlock and other trees. The state of New York slowly progressed with conserving lands of about 700,000 acres, which is a mix of public and private land. And that line was shown on maps as a blue line, and it's now become the blue line of the Catskill Park as we know it. The state of New York owns almost half the land within the Catskill Park, and those lands we manage as the forest preserve. Most of the remaining lands are in private ownership. The management of those lands is largely left to local communities through zoning and other land use controls that are imposed at the local level. The forest preserve lands in the Catskill Park are classified into four major land categories. By far, the largest classifications are the wilderness and wild forest. So wilderness is intended to be a place where someone can go and recreate 
where the presence of man is essentially not apparent. So you can't use a chainsaw in wilderness. You can't drive your car into a wilderness area. We don't allow snowmobiles or ATVs in wilderness. We don't even allow mountain bikes in wilderness because those are mechanized devices and we're trying to get away from even that degree of development to really give you that primitive sense in wilderness. So what can you do in wilderness? Hunting, hiking, trapping, fishing, camping, and wildlife observation. We have about 35 peaks above 3,500 feet in elevation. And a significant number of those peaks, probably 10 or 12, are trailless. And that trailless experience is one of the things we're trying to provide in wilderness areas. In wild forest, those lands are managed for a greater variety of recreational opportunities, and we can designate and mark snowmobile trails in wild forest. We have mountain bike trails in wild forest, and we have a little more extensive horseback riding trail system in wild forest. And of course, hiking, snowshoeing, and cross-country skiing are all allowable uses, as well as hunting and fishing. In Shokan, turn left onto Reservoir Road for a first-hand glimpse of New York City's water supply. Continue across the bridge, dividing the Ashokan Reservoir for panoramic views of the Catskills Shandaken Range. This road continues to the Route 28A Loop, where you can park on either side of the dam to walk or bike along a two-mile scenic promenade. No one knows the story of New York's reservoirs like Diane Galusha. We hiked with her along Birch Creek in the Shandaken Wild Forest. This is um, New York City's drinking water that we're sitting next to here. It's bubbling away through these beautiful summer woods. This stream makes its way to the Esopus Creek. And the Esopus Creek is what was dammed to create the Ashokan Reservoir. So this water, assuming it isn't drunk by a deer or a porcupine uh, and isn't evaporated, eventually gets to New York City. And New York gets about 1.2 billion gallons of water a day. Uh, about a billion gallons or so from the Catskills, and that would be a lot of water to filter. The plant that they would have to build to do that would be gigantic and very, very expensive. So the, the least expensive and arguably probably the most effective way of keeping New York City's water clean is to concentrate on the source rather than trying to filter out impurities at the other end. New York City's water supply is the largest unfiltered water supply in the country. There are a few others, but this is by far the biggest. The story of New York City's Catskill water supply goes back to the turn of the 20th century, when 26 entire communities, about 5,500 people, were displaced to make way for a network of reservoirs. As you're driving through the Catskills, you will very likely see brown and white signs that say former site of Granton or former site of Olive Bridge. And those refer to communities that were lost to the six reservoirs here in the Catskills. These communities were demolished, really leveled, for the most part, all of the homes and the barns and the businesses and the churches and the schools and the, the community centers were destroyed. They didn't want to leave any kind of organic material on the floors of these reservoirs, so they basically removed all traces of habitation and all traces of vegetation. They cut down all the trees to within a couple inches of the ground, filled in all the 
foundations and the uh, privy holes and all of that and created something of a wasteland before they opened the gates of these coffer dams and let the water rise and cover the sites of those communities, which really are kind of ghost towns beneath the waters now. The early reservoirs were built largely by immigrants. Those immigrants were housed in large labor camps that were run by contractors, contracting firms who got the jobs to to do various aspects of these projects. There were people who worked underground building the tunnels, hundreds of feet beneath the surface, which was uh, a feat in and of itself. They would drill vertical construction shafts down hundreds of feet, a little at a time, a little at a time, a little at a time, until they got down to tunnel level. And then they would begin to bore horizontally using dynamite and little trains that they had set up down below. And incredibly tedious, incredibly labor-intensive, and incredibly dangerous. Many people died. uh, Many people lost limbs. It's an engineering marvel. It's just when you think about this water that we're sitting next to is eventually going to be coming at somebody's kitchen faucet in a couple of months. It's getting there strictly by gravity. This took a lot of thought, a lot of foresight, a lot of incredible engineering by a lot of very brilliant people, and a lot of very hard work, and lives, and blood, sweat, and toil from Uh, many, many workers over generations. There are a lot of people that we owe thanks to who gave up a lot so that New York City could have water. Okay, so I put a a drift over some likely water. Nice, realistic dead drift to me. Like this is, yep, there was a bite, missed. And you saw the nature of that bite. There was a quick, quick attack. Let's put that over him again, see if we can get that, that guy to come up again these small rainbow trout, although they may may be small, they have big hearts. They're going to fight like crazy. They're going to jump around. And if anybody comes here and hooks one on a slender fly rod like this, they're going to have a big fight on their hands because these guys are real tough competitors. There's all manner of other organisms here that are trying to catch these things, not just the fly fishermen, but also the raccoons, the eagles, the kingfishers, great blue herons, the merganser ducks, the martins, the weasels, the fisher cats. God knows what the bears are doing out here at night when we're not here. My name is Mark Lodi. I'm a professional photographer, but I'm also a fly fisherman by avocation, long-standing fly fisherman, and actually recently opened a uh, fly fishing guide business here on the Esopus Creek. And the Esopus Creek is known as one of those rivers in the Catskill system that is considered the cradle of American fly fishing. And this is one of the first uh, rivers to be fly fished, in America. Its fame dates back actually to the early 1800s. For example, the first fishing resort in America was on the banks of the Stony Clove Creek, a tributary of the Esopus here, and that was uh, in the location where today the Phoenicia Elementary School is. And that was chartered as a boarding house. It was a Milo Barber boarding house chartered in, I believe, 1824. And it was the go-to place for fishermen to uh, get expert guidance and flies and newspaper articles and letters and postcards of the period of the day, citing uh, what a great guide Milo Milo Barber was and a fantastic cook. And this is the the place to go to catch a trout. Well-known fishermen, people like Ted Williams, people like Jimmy Carter, 
regarded this river as probably one of the uh, best trout fishing rivers in America. It's been somewhat impaired due to the extreme weather conditions we've been experiencing due to global climate change. But today, although it's a little bit off color and running a little bit high, it's been fishing healthy. The waters have cleared up in recent days, and I'm seeing some jumping trout off into the far distance there. So that's, that's always a warming sign to the heart of a fly fishing nut like myself. Uh, you don't need to spend $800 for a fly rod. You can get a perfectly serviceable fly rod for $80. It's really the skill of the presentation of the artificial fly to the fish that is the key to whether or not you catch fish. Or if you just want to fish with a worm or maybe a, a cricket uh, put on a hook, that tackle is generally cheaper, spin casting, uh, casting tackle. But also, you can check any of this kind of tackle out from the Phoenicia Library if you hold a valid Hudson Valley Library card. So you can actually check out a complete fly rod system for little or no expense and for very little inconvenience. You can be casting a fly on some of the best trout water on the East Coast. So we're drifting that fly over some likely rocks that are creating kind of a still little pool behind those rocks. And we're letting that fly drift down in a gentle current. It's approaching a series of rocks that might be a good hiding place. So the fly is gently drifting. And, it, oh, whoa, see that? Fish rolled on it, but didn't take it. There, there it is again, right there, it's right there. No, didn't take it. Yeah, I think the game's up, too dark to see the fly. So this has been kind of an interesting day on an interesting river. They seemed to come up readily, but they just didn't hook positively. I think we had, what, three, three uh, trout that were pretty high up in the air on, on the hook, but by the time they came back down into the water, they were swimming free again, so that's probably the way it should be anyway. So I don't, mind, uh, I don't mind this kind of score, actually. You know, it's fun to catch fish, and that's the ultimate game, and maybe that's the ultimate measure of our success, but with my um, guide business, Catskill Mountain Angler, I'm teaching a lot of people who are new to the sport, who have never fly fished before and in some cases just never fished before and I always try to emphasize that catching fish is sort of the objective of the sport but the rewards are so much greater than simply catching a fish and that it often seems like counting fish is actually kind of passe. So um, I would encourage anybody to who enjoys the outdoors and enjoys communing and being a part of mother nature out here to come out and uh, and wet a line here on the Esopus Creek right along uh, the Route 28 Scenic Byway Corridor. But I early learned that from almost any stream in a trout country, the true angler could take trout. And that the great secret was this, that whatever bait you used, worm, grasshopper, grub, or fly, there was one thing you must always put upon your hook, namely, your heart. When you bait your hook with your heart, the fish always bite. They will jump clean from the water after it, they will dispute with each other over it. It is a morsel they love above everything else. John Burroughs. My name is Bill Burns and I live in Fleischman's here in Delaware County, the first village in Delaware County as you cross the High Mount Line. You know, when I, when I arrived in the Catskills 43 years ago, uh, I never heard of John Burroughs. John Burroughs uh, was a very prolific writer who really invented the nature essay. Because what he did 
in terms of writing an essay that brought people into the outdoors and allowed them to kind of experience the outdoors along with him was quite different, I think, from what Thoreau was doing. And it took me a little while to realize that here on this end of the Catskills, certainly what I like to call the West Slope, John Burroughs is the spirit that resides here. He was born in 1837 on a farm in Roxbury, New York, at the foot of Old Clump Mountain. I believe the sixth or seventh child of eight or nine, ten, and he was the boy who didn't really like to go to the barn, wasn't really that interested in milking, and wasn't really that interested in the farm chores, was more interested in wandering up on the hills and uh, daydreaming and uh, reading and the kinds of things that uh, Delaware County farm kids, certainly in the 1830s, it was unusual. His job on the farm, therefore, became to go call the cows in because that's where he was going to be anyway. John, upon calling the cows in, discovered a uh, boulder, a big rock that had been left at one of the top pastures of his father's farm, left by the glacier. And he would sit on that rock for hours, just sort of daydreaming and watching uh, the natural world go by. He had read Walt Whitman's groundbreaking book, Leaves of Grass, which totally changed the nature of poetry, totally changed the nature of literature, and and totally changed the American language and the idea of what it meant to be an American. And if you're riding up into the Catskills on the scenic byway right now and you've not read Leaves of Grass, go buy yourself a copy. Walt Whitman and John Burroughs meet. Whitman calls Burroughs Jack. They become friends. Whitman said to Burroughs one day, publish your personality. John Burroughs had to kind of think about that and figure out what that meant. And when he thought about his personality, I think what he thought about was fishing and uh, watching those birds on that rock when he was a boy and going out to get the cows as he did when he was a boy and, you know, planting things in the ground. One of the problems with Burroughs is he wrote so many essays, they fill 23 volumes. Each volume has a title, but... He didn't write that one book like Walden that everybody's supposed to read, whether they did or not, you know. Probably the book that people should turn to first is Wake Robin. It's very bird-centric and bird-heavy. The Wake Robin actually is a flower, but the book uh, concentrates a lot on birds. But with a tremendous interest in birding today, that, that's become a popular book. Wake Robin Wake Robin Wake Robin, wake. My name is Steve Castor, and I live on Pakatakan Mountain in the Catskills. I'm a musician and not a borough scholar. Um, I'm just a musician who likes to take walks out in the wood. I moved up from the city and I started reading a lot of boroughs. And I started thinking about how much boroughs' writings still resonate today. Uh, obviously these trails and these mountains are all still walkable and so you can kind of uh, look at what he's looking at and they've been they've been preserved not only that aspect of it but also just sort of the wider issues that he he dealt with uh, you know he's one of the first conservationists and he talked a lot about the spread of the cities you know the spread of technology which was you know the industrial in his time and digital in our our time. We talked a lot about keeping things local. I um, 
had read Wake Robin, which was his first book of essays, and I started thinking about his other essays. The titles themselves are so evocative, and I was just like, wow, it'd be cool to write a group of songs inspired by Burroughs' essays and his life. And so so I reached out to Josh Roy Brown, who plays dobro and banjo, and Aaron Lieberman, who plays guitar and sings, and Scott Hill, who's playing guitar and singing, and uh, John Jacobson on the fiddle, and also Amy Lieberman plays with us. Sometimes she plays the big bass fiddle. I asked them to, you know, reread some Burroughs and, and write a song inspired by him and inspired by his writing. And, you know, they came back with these songs that were really super moving. And every, everyone found, like, a little bit different facet in Burroughs that, that um, brought something out. Nature seems to be like a liftoff point for him to connecting with, with the bigger universe. And I, th- and I think that really underpins his writing. And, it, and it's something that speaks to me and I think spoke to all the guys, as you can see um, from, from those songs. Friends with the most famous people in America. He's a friend of Teddy Roosevelt. He met Teddy Roosevelt 20 years before Roosevelt was the president. They became friends. Became friends with Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, Harvey Firestone, uh, and gaggles of Vassar girls who had come over to uh, meet with Mr. Roberto's. At some point, he decided this is too much. And he also wanted to go home. And home for John Burroughs was always the Catskills and Roxbury. So in 1910, he leased a home on the farm that he'd grown up on from his brother. He built a uh, very rustic kind of uh, veranda or porch on that uh, house, porch he slept on every night. Put a, a Franklin stove in it and an indoor toilet, indoor bathroom, probably the first indoor plumbing maybe up there on that hill in Roxbury. No electricity and uh, he called it Woodchuck Lodge. And every summer for the last 10 years of his life, John Burroughs would come to Woodchuck Lodge and he would spend his time there. Writing, again, he wrote every day, but he also would receive visitors there. Every year, John Burroughs, Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, and Harvey Firestone would take a camping trip. It's a camping trip that none of us would recognize. Ford cars outfitted with kitchens and outfitted with tables and chairs and tablecloths, and the men still wore their suits. They just took their ties off. They called themselves the Vagabonds, these four, and they would go to all these wonderful sites in America, and Henry Ford would have everything filmed and those films would be shown as shorts before the silent movies that people were going to see it was great marketing for ford because people like you and me would sit in the theater and say hey i'd like to have one of those ford cars you know i'd like to go camping like that and uh, it was also great publicity for all the people who were in it john burroughs included he became even more celebrated than famous The ideas of John Burroughs about simple living, harmony with nature, nature outside your back door, they can be expressed through literature or through music, but they can also be expressed through interior design and architecture. And that's what Burroughs did in Woodchuck Lodge, is that the way he sets up the house, the way the house is is put together, expresses those very ideas of simplicity, harmony with nature, you know, access to nature. 
I think the wonderful thing about Woodchuck Lodge is that it looks very much like Mr. Burroughs just stepped out. He might be back any minute. You can help preserve John Burroughs' Woodchuck Lodge by joining as a member at jbwoodchucklodge.org. Thanks to Roland Smith for his reading and to Kathleen McNenny for hosting our original audio tour. Thanks again to our sponsors, the Catskill Mountains Scenic Byway and the Emerson Resort and Spa. Music by the John Burroughs Memorial Locust and Wild Honey Mountain Orchestra. Find them on Facebook. CatsCast is on Facebook at Silver Hollow Audio, or you can find us on Instagram at CatsCast. Thanks for listening. Subscribe if you haven't already, and we hope you'll tell your friends about us. Until next time, I'm Brett Berry.